Have you ever really looked at a seed? I mean, really looked at a seed. It's small and seemingly insignificant, but packed into each seed is an almost limitless potential. To reach this potential, it needs to sprout roots. And to sprout roots, it needs to be planted in good soil. In a matter of years, this tiny seed can grow into a giant tree, producing hundreds, if not thousands, of pieces of fruit. Each piece of fruit then contains its own seeds, with their own potential, that can bear more fruit. And so on, and so on, and so on. All from just one seed being planted. So what are you being faithful to plant? How are you investing your energies, abilities, and resources to grow God's kingdom? There's no way to measure how much fruit will come from one seed. But together, we can be faithful to plant and watch God produce a vast harvest in our church, in our city, and the world for many years to come. So the big question of the last few weeks is, uh, who's the voiceover uh, in that video? And uh, you have one more week to figure that out, okay? We'll just leave that there. Uh, if you're a guest here at home on live stream uh, over in the amphitheater, welcome. Uh, we're really glad that you've joined us today. I want to ask you to uh, turn with me to James chapter 4, um, uh, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, and then we'll also be over in First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Um, but uh, it is great to see. I hope that you're doing well. All the mothers in the room, um, happy Mother's Day. We're so grateful for you. We, we thank God for you, your sacrifice, your love. Uh, I'm convinced that the role of mom uh, is the most significant in our culture and that the home is the building block of all of culture and uh, your influence in the home is, uh, is second to none. And so uh, for, for, for your uh, sacrifices, uh, for your children and for your families, we say thank you. And for those in the room who, uh, whose uh, dream perhaps of uh, being a mom has uh, not yet been fulfilled uh, and that uh, causes perhaps a burden even on this day, uh, we want to pray for you. Uh, and then we also know that there's folks in our room uh, whose moms uh, are not here um, at least anymore. And so we we also want to pray uh, for you as well. But uh, this is a significant day. God has done an amazing miracle uh, in every generation through moms. And so uh, we just want to commend you. We're grateful for you. I also want you to pray for Pastor George. He's overseas. He got sick, so sick he needed to go to the hospital. He's out of the hospital, and, uh, and, and he was supposed to fly home yesterday. And, uh, and so we're hoping that he'll be flying home tomorrow, okay? So... Uh, you can be uh, praying for him and for Nancy. They're well, they're safe, and, uh, but, um, but if you would, let's, let's bow and let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace in our life. And God, as we lay these things before you, we thank you that you have the power, you have the strength, the authority, uh, God, to, uh, Lord, to act in ways that we cannot. Uh, your word says that you are omnipresent, which means that you're with George right now over in Hungary, and you're with us here. And so I pray that you would protect him. I pray that you would strengthen him. I pray that you would heal him. And I pray that he would be able to fly home tomorrow. Uh, and so we uh, lift him to you. Lord, we also want to thank you for the love that you have shown us and how so many, uh, even in this room, uh, mothers who, who, who have, uh, Lord, seen that love and have poured that love back upon their families. And so 
We give you all the praise. We know, God, that we wouldn't even know what love is if you had not shown it to us. And so on this day, when we celebrate our mothers, God, we celebrate you because you're worthy of it. I pray that you would speak through weakness and you would bring glory to Jesus Christ and you would mobilize us as a people to plant seeds of the gospel in our city. And I pray that you would use this and this time in your word, Lord, to contribute to our motivation, um, our zeal, our courage, or toward that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in God's word, it actually tells us that you and I, that we're all created by God. We were created for the glory of God. We were created to live in a relationship with God, and we will all be held accountable by God. And what that means is that God is our origin, he is our purpose, and he's our destiny. And the Bible tells us that every single one of us in our sin, that we walked away from God. We severed that relationship. It's an interesting thing what takes place in the lives of people. When we disconnect from our origin, our purpose, and our destiny, we have no reference point for life. What happens when that happens is, is we lose our place. We start saying things. We start writing things. And sometimes other people who are just as lost as us, we start thinking those are good things. So there's a poem. They even wrote a movie about it, right? And, uh, and in fact, it's up here on the screen. Look at it. Um, this is William Henley, the poem Invictus. In the very last line, this is what it says. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. Now, if you could read all of the poem, and it's not very long, you can pull it up this afternoon, you actually see that it's, it's a poem of rebellion. It's actually a poem saying, I don't care, God, who you are. I'm going to be God over my own life. And so when he says, it matters not how straight the gate, what he's saying is, I don't care the standard or the authority of heaven. I don't care how tall the gates are. And then he says, and I don't even care how charged your scroll is with punishments against me. I don't care what the law of God or what you think, God, about my life. And then he says, and this is why. Because I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. This finds a lot of sympathy in a culture that's shaking their fist at God and saying that we don't need you. We don't want you. Yet God tells us as the people of God that he wants us to literally align every single part of our life with him in order to experience the power that only he can give so that other people who were not inside the people of God would look at our lives and say, man, if that's what it's like to follow God and to be with God, then I want to be a part of those people. James chapter 4 verses 13 through 15 says, come now you who say today or tomorrow, We will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So you have to ask the question. There's no commandments violated in anything that we just read. They're working. They're making profit. They're planning. And God calls them arrogant. And so you have to ask the question, what's the big deal? And the big deal that James is writing about there is only that these people, just like you and I sometimes, we choose the place. He says the city. We choose a duration. We'll be there for a year or two. We choose the enterprise. We say, 
We're going to do business there, and we choose the goal, and the goal is profit. And we can do all of that and never consider God. We can never consider the fact that God has an agenda for our life. That God may want us to be in this city instead of that city. That God may not want us necessarily to do the things that we just think that we should do if he wasn't here. You see, James is saying, do you really believe that God is consequential not only to heaven and hell, but to Monday and Tuesday? Is he really consequential? Does he matter? Does his plan matter in life? And what we looked at last week on this idea of planning our lives in the church is, is from Psalm 90, right? Was that if you and I had the capacity to see the fullness of God's glory and the capacity to number each one of our days, to actually see the totality of all of our time on the earth, then we would be inclined within our heart to extend our days to God and say, God, would you order all of my steps? Would you help me to understand what you're doing in life so that I can align my life with what you're doing in life because I want what I'm doing to outlast my life. And only if I align myself with the kingdom that you are building, God, will you establish the work of my hands. And so what we looked at last time as we looked at what God is doing, we saw that God's on a rescue mission, that he created us to live in a relationship with him, and then we sinned against him. And instead of crushing us, he promised to rescue us. It's an amazing gift, and how he did this was he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to the earth to rescue us. And Jesus died in our place, and then he rose from the dead. And when people saw the resurrected Christ, they put their faith in him. They trusted him. They began telling other people that Jesus rose from the dead, And that because he rose from the dead, they could be forgiven of their sin. And more people believed. And in every city where this took place, every town and every village where this message was going out, more people believed. And God was taking these people and collecting them together and making a new people called the church, a covenant people. And they had a specific mission. And it was to be about the mission of God and their mission, the mission of the church is to display his glory to all peoples by enjoying his grace, by proclaiming his glory and anticipating his rescuer. At Providence, this is never going to change. The mission of God until Jesus Christ comes back to rescue us is to create a people that's going to do these things. And the church is what he created with his blood. Our job, our job description from God himself is that we should be about these things. You and I should be spending our time, investing our time as a people, learning how to enjoy God, enjoy his grace, enjoy friendship, enjoy obedience, enjoy walking with him, knowing him and knowing each other. He also tells us our job is to proclaim him, is to tell other people about him. And we're doing all this while we're anticipating the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes in order to restore all things. Now, every church if they're a faithful church, they, they create a mission statement for their church that identifies with what God is saying. This is what I'm doing and this is what I've created. And here at Providence, this is how we say it. We exist to glorify God by introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ and growing them up to love and worship him. And when we look for a strategy of how we're going to go about doing this mission, we simply look back to Jesus and we say, Jesus, what are you doing? And what we see right now is we see Jesus out connecting people to himself and to others. We see him growing people in truth and love. 
We see him serving people inside the church and outside the church. And we see him going to people, not only in our land, but in the lands throughout the entire world. And Providence, all we're simply wanting to do is to line our individual lives and our collective lives as a church family around what God is doing so that he will establish the work of our hands. So when we come to a time like right now where I'm laying out a three-year vision, you have to understand that the foundation has already been set. He's not asked us to be creative about what we're supposed to be doing. He asked us to be faithful with what he's told us to be doing. But every few years, it's good to back up and say, with our mission in mind and our strategy in mind, as we walk down this path in order to accomplish this end for his glory, what, what do we hope to do? What can we envision us doing so that we can walk together? And over the next years, we want to plant You see, Paul wrote to us. You can see this passage on the screen. He says, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And so driven and inspired by the promise that we see here, that even though planting is hard, those who do endure in planting, that they are going to see a harvest that corresponds with the kind of seed that we put into the ground and that that harvest is going to bring him glory. We want to spend the next three years, three, yeah, three years planting three good seeds in three different soil beds. We want to plant our lives in the church. We want to plant the gospel in our city and we want to plant churches in the world. And next week, we'll look at churches in the world. Last week, we looked at planning our lives in the church. This is really important because if our lamp is not burning and not blazing brightly, our light will simply not go very far. So what I want to do is to show you from 1 Timothy chapter 3, just a few verses, that move us from planting our lives in the church to planting the gospel in our city. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. This is what Paul writes his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So, Providence and guests, I want to show you two things here in this text that I believe will propel us in this mission. And in this vision, the first is this, is the value of the church inspires a particular conduct, a way to live our life. If we really see the value of the church is going to inspire a particular sacrifice for the church. And this is true in any realm, anything that we put our hands to. If you have a magnificent vision about anything, It's going to increase the scope or the magnitude 
of your sacrifice in order to see that happen. Some people have an amazing vision of what their marriage can be. And so they're willing to put tremendous amounts of effort and sacrifice and love and intentionality in order to see their vision come to fruition. But if you have a low view of marriage or a low view of what your marriage can be, it's always going to undermine the amount of sacrifice. The same with a garden. You go outside and you see your yard and it's a disaster. Some people look and they envision this amazing yard with fountains and grass and bushes and flowers and colors. And that propels them to put forth an effort that is going to create that. But if you look out and you think, you know what? I don't don't ever have to mow this. I think I'll just go back inside, you know? Well, then you're not going to put forth an effort in order to see it come to fruition. Our vision always propels our sacrifice. And I got to confess to you that I've not always had an enormous vision, a bright, beautiful vision of the church. Some of us were in that same place. We come in here, we read the Bible, and we see the kind of life that can take place when the Holy Spirit invades and permeates and saturates our life. And then when we see what it actually happens in life, it doesn't quite look the same. We can be rude and we can be petty and we can be small and selfish and all kinds of things. There was a particular time when my dad, who is a pastor, I was about 12, 13 years old, and he went through a tremendously difficult time. And it, and, and it caused such a scar in my heart towards the church that when we were forced to move from California to Missouri, And our whole family was kind of burned by the idea of the church. When my parents would take us to the church, they'd drop us off. And I'd go in one door and I'd go out the back door without them knowing. And I'd go to a donut shop. I thought that the church was the most dangerous place in the world. Because they had a Bible which gave them authority. And they could be mean. And so... God had to do a work in my heart, and it was amazing what he did. I think he did a miracle. He didn't first give me a love for the church. What he gave me was a love for the Bible. And all of a sudden, I started reading passages, just like the one that says here, that things like Acts chapter 20 that says that the church was literally brought forth, literally birthed out of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see passages in the Bible that says that the church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God, the household of God. And then you see passages that says that the church is literally God's mechanism, God's people to fulfill the mission that he longs to fulfill, that, he, that, that God is working to fulfill. And all of a sudden I was confronted with a question, and that is how can I resent the people that Jesus bled to create? How can I stand in neutral apathetic even, to not wanting to put all of my energy behind the people of God when the people of God are the family of God and the bride of God and the, and, and the body. And so all of a sudden, God began to give me an expanded vision of the church that led to an expanded level of love and sacrifice for the church. And you see, when Paul wrote Timothy, This letter, Timothy was not gushing in his heart about the wonderful nature of the church. He's a pastor in Ephesus and he's getting beat up 
from the outside. He's persecuted from the inside. People are just squabbling and he's tired of it. He's sick of it. He's looking around and he, he knows what, what, what God can do in the church. And he looks around, and he doesn't see it. And so his, his sacrifice is beginning to diminish. He's becoming timid. He's, there's, there's lots of things about Timothy that are, that are not so healthy when Paul writes. And so Paul wants to write to expand his vision about the church so that Paul will literally, so that young Timothy will plant his life in the church for her good. And so he says, Timothy, you know, I'm writing these things so that you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And then he says, the church of the living God. He's saying, Timothy, do you understand this? That God, the living God, the only God, has attached his name to the local church. So whatever you do in the church, whatever happens in that church, people correspond that with what they think about who God is. So how can you be ambivalent about the church, Timothy? How can you separate yourself and say, well, whatever happens to her happens? No, no, no. You see, Providence, if you and I, we really understand the church's unique role in God's mission, we will sacrifice for her. And this is what we looked at last time. We'll pray for her. We'll worship with her. We'll serve her. We'll give to her in spite of the imperfections that we see in her. The second thing I want you to see is this, is that the value of the gospel inspires a passionate confession. So the value of the church, it inspires a real particular kind of conduct, how we're going to live within the church. But once we see what's been entrusted to us in terms of the message, the gospel of Jesus, all of a sudden he says, it's going to inspire this very passionate confession. Now, Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus, which is the home of an amazing temple. It's not there anymore. But at the time, it was one of the architectural wonders of the world. You can see a rendering of it here. It had 127 pillars that held up the roof. I think there's a picture coming. Maybe. There it is. There it is, okay? Now, this is not what it looks like now, okay? This is what we guessed that it looked like then. Just an absolutely stunning thing. So what Paul does is he leans on their architectural treasure within their city in order to illustrate that God has actually called the church to be like these pillars. But instead of holding up a roof, God has called us to hold up the truth of God. You say, well, what truth? Well, in one sense, it's the, it's the whole counsel of God. It's the whole Bible. Creation all the way to Jesus' second coming. But then what he does is he zooms in. He narrows down the focus just to the summit of the mountain. And he says, Anytime we're teaching any part of the truth of God, you need to make sure you teach this part of the truth of God with it. And what he calls, it's called the gospel. And this is what he says. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. What's he saying there? He's asking this question. How is it possible for people who are sinners to be made godly so they can go to heaven? How can sinful people be transformed to the core so that they are godly people so that they can go to heaven because heaven only allows godly people? This is the mystery of godliness. And you have to understand this, friends. Every other question in life, whether it's who should I marry? Who should I date? 
Who should I friend? What should I study? What school should I go to? What job should I take? What should I have for lunch? All of these questions are absolutely insignificant if we are dangling over hell, suspended by the hand of God, whose glory we have not esteemed, whose faithfulness we have not trusted, whose word we have not obeyed, whose justice we have not respected, whose presence we, is not, we have not loved, and who demands a perfect godliness in order to escape this peril and enter his heaven. You see, the word mystery in our culture, oftentimes what we think of it is sort of like a riddle, that if we, if we ask a lot of people and are really creative, we can perhaps figure it out. It's almost like a puzzle. In the Bible, that's not how the word mystery is used. In the Bible, the word mystery means that it is something that is so unsearchable and so uninventable that we would never find the answer to the question unless it was revealed to us. And what he's saying is this, is to the church, the answer that is unsearchable, unfindable, uninventable, and that is how do sinful people become godly people who can be heaven-bound people? It's been entrusted, given to the church, and our job, he says, is to confess it. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So over the last year, we've shown you this model of how do you share the gospel, this thing called three circles. And what I want to do is show you where Paul speaks. He's going to say six different lines in a little poem at the end of verse 16. And I want to show you those in light of what we have taught you in terms of these three circles, okay? And so what the Bible says is that as we go out confessing, is that we start with the fact that he created all things, that God designed all things. And that all of us, even though we know there's brokenness in the world, we look at the world and we recognize that God, that, that, that there's more than this. Even our desire to fix what we see is propelled by an, by an idea that's been etched within our conscience by God himself that says, it shouldn't be like this. It should be better than this. We all know. We see the beauty of a sunset, and we recognize that it, this is an amazing world. We look at biology, and we see cellular biology, and you think, that doesn't just happen. God is amazing. He created all things. The Bible tells us, though, that we then sinned. We rebelled against God, and that sin brought a tremendous amount of brokenness to the world. So much brokenness, literally, that just swept over culture to where in that brokenness, our relationships can fracture. Our work finds futility. That's why on Monday, you can work all day tomorrow only to make more work for you on Tuesday, right? Our bodies would eventually decay and even die. This was not God's plan. And so what God did is that when we sinned, he promised a rescuer. And this is called the gospel. This is the good news. And this is where Paul starts his poem. He says, he was manifested in the flesh. He is Jesus, God. God was manifested. He was made known. He was seen in the flesh. In other words, Christ took on a body. And while he was on the earth, he lived in perfect godliness, a perfectly righteous life. And then he died for our sins. Now, had Jesus been sinful, the wage of sin is death, he would have stayed dead. 
as the wage of his sin. But the next line says he was vindicated by the Spirit. What that means is that the Spirit rose him from the dead in order to vindicate that this indeed was a righteous, godly, perfect man, the God-man. He was perfect in all ways. He was then seen by angels. Angels were at his empty tomb. It was the angels that said, hey, he's not here anymore. He's risen from the dead. And then all of a sudden, those people were propelled to go and tell other people that he's risen from the dead. And it says that he was proclaimed among the nations, that they started going around and telling people that there was a man named Jesus who was God, who came from heaven to earth. He lived a righteous life and he went out and he died for us and he rose from the dead. And it says that as people believed, the fifth line is he was believed on in the world. People began believing. You see, those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, their sins are taken away and they're given his righteousness. This is why the word gospel means good news. It is the answer for how sinful people are made godly people so that they can go to heaven. It's not that we contribute to this equation in any way. It's that Jesus in his perfect righteousness gives us his perfect righteousness when we trust in his accomplishments. You can add to this in no way. You simply believe and trust that it's true. And he takes away all of your sin. And then it says that he was taken up into glory. Jesus went up and he's at the right hand of the father interceding for us. And what this allows is for us to recover and pursue God's design in our relationships, in our responsibilities, in the world. We're now given a power through his spirit as Jesus is praying for us to be able to actually become healthy and whole in our lives, in our families, in our churches, and even our culture. You see, this is the good news. It is uninventable. We could not come up with this as the strategy. And the reason we know that is because every time man has sought to answer the question and solve the riddle of how do sinful people become godly people so they can go to heaven, they always say, try harder. Do more. Do better. And the Bible says he must do all. And he did. He accomplished all of it for us. It's been done. And this is the good news. And this news, he's given to us. We have it. It's the most important question in the whole world. People are out there right now asking, thinking, the most important thing on my mind is what city should I go live in? And we know better. They have to know. And God's given it to us. They're not going to figure it out. It's uninventable. It's unsearchable. It's unfindable. And so God says, I'm going to give it and entrust it to the church who's going to be the pillar and buttress of the truth, holding it up for the whole world to see. This is his plan. So we want to be faithful to this. And as we consider and think over three years, what does it look like? This is what we desire to see. We're praying for faithfulness, but in faithfulness, we desire to see 1,000 people in our body over the next three years lead someone to Christ and begin to disciple them. You see Matthew 28, verse 18, 19 and 20. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Now listen to me. Faithfulness is our goal. I know that not a single one of us can lead anyone to faith in Christ outside of him working in people's lives. We simply share the news. Whether anyone comes to faith in Christ is entirely up to God. We know that. And so our mission is faithfulness. 
So you say, well, then why, why a thousand? Well, it's simply this. One thousand simply represents collective faithfulness. If God has called us as individuals to do this, it really should be 1,700 because we have 1,700 people that have said that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ above the age of 18, are calling Providence my home to be on mission with God. Each one of us in three-year time be sharing the gospel with such frequency in our city with people that some of those seeds we're told in Matthew 13 are eventually going to land on good soil and they're going to turn and they're going to believe in Jesus Christ. That can happen. And so we're simply urging faithfulness to this mission and then leaving the results to God. Now, why is it that we would say we should go as individuals to make disciples as opposed to let's just all invite someone here and you tell them? There's three reasons for this. The first is because Jesus commissioned us, not just me. And one day we're all going to stand before God and he's going to hold us accountable for the last thing he told us to do. Some of us have never had that privilege. Some of us have never even voiced. So the possibility of having the privilege of leading someone to faith in Christ is an impossibility. And we simply want to help you with that. We want as a people simply to be faithful with the commission. The second thing is there's personal good involved. Philemon verse 6, he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. When we are out sharing our faith, God confirms his pleasure in our heart. The third reason is simple math. Simple math. I want you just to imagine that there's one believer on the earth, and that one believer... He goes over to NC State's football stadium, and it's a full house. 57,583 people show up every single Sunday, and every week it's a different 57,583 people. So every Sunday, the one believer on the earth stands up, shares the gospel with a full house. If he did that every single week, it would take 2,500 years for the 7.4 billion people to even hear the gospel. 2,500 years. However, if that one believer, one believer, was scattering seeds all year long and led one person to faith in Jesus Christ, and then spent time actually discipling them, teaching them how to grow, teaching them how to pray, teaching them how to share the gospel. And then that next year, year two, there's two disciples in the world. And they go out and they each win one person to faith in Christ. Sharing the gospel, God does a miracle. Now all of a sudden there's four. Did you know that in that strategy, it would take just over 30 years, in between 30 and 31 years, for all 7.4 billion people on the earth to actually hear the gospel? 31 years by each one telling one, sharing with one, and seeing one come to faith in Christ. You see, as a a church family, even last week, some of you weren't able to stay, but we voted as a church family to approve the expansion of this worship center and its lobby. And that decision, Providence, spoke volumes about our faith and God's desire to use us to reach our expanding city for years and years to come. See, if we're actually planting The gospel in our city, we're going to need room for people to be able to join us so that they can hear and grow and be sent out with the gospel. So the last Sunday that we're going to be in this room, at least at this point in time, will be in three weeks. 
Okay, and so on June 4th, I believe is the first Sunday in June, this will not be open to us. We're going to be in four different locations, and for this hour, it's going to be all four, okay? Amphitheater and the DLC, Prisms, and Fellowship Hall. It's going to, it's going to be a little messy, right? But, but God can use this, and he wants to use this in, in our lives. See, if you feel uneasy about sharing your faith, I want you to know you're not alone. We all have those fears. I have those fears. We all ask, what if I don't know enough? Or what are people going to think about me? God simply wants us to be prepared. You see, 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Listen, Providence, if you feel unprepared at this time, that's really okay. Just don't let yourself be found three years from now still unprepared. Make a plan. Participate with us. We're going to be offering many, many tools, things like this little life guide. It's back at Next Steps, and it goes through all those three circles. You can download uh, on on your phone or uh, all the different devices that we have. There's, there's so many tools out there. We want to train. We want to encourage one another in our life groups, simply taking a few minutes each week to say, hey, has anyone here had the opportunity to share the gospel with anybody this week? And to celebrate, right? We want to be excellent in hospitality. It's going to be kind of crazy around here, at least for the first few weeks in June, trying to figure out how to help people find a room. Everyone needs to be on the hospitality team, Right? Whether you wear the badge or not, we're all a part of the hospitality team. And I would encourage you to consider, even during this next year, maybe investing with our children because there's no greater population of unbelieving people in our whole church family than those who have yet to grow up to even understand the gospel. This could be some way that you could plant your life. Every one of us can find a way. In fact, I want to show a little story right now. It's a little two minutes. It's an amazing story about someone looking for the way. Watch this. Hi, I'm Betty Harrington. I live at Capitol Oaks. And I became a Christian at age six at a revival. And then when I was a teenager, I had a dream about Christ calling me into service. And so I've always felt like I should be in ministry for the Lord. My husband died about a year and a half ago. We were married 63 years, two months and four days. Man, it was a, a, a precious life together. Since I moved here, I have felt the calling to be in ministry to others here. I started out with Starting Point by Andy Stanley. We had about 10 people join us for that. And so this is to help make disciples out of people here who are willing. My husband's order of service had a poem in it called Safely Home. I am safely home in heaven, dear ones, all so happy, all so bright. There's perfect joy and beauty in this everlasting light. All the pain and the grief are over. Every restless tossing past. I am now at peace forever, safely home in heaven at last. There's work still waiting for you, so you must not idly stand. Do your work while life remaineth. You shall rest in Jesus' land. When that work is all completed, he will gently call you home. Oh, the rapture of the meeting. Oh, the joy to see you come. I have been called to this ministry. I do not know what kind of fruit I am producing, but hopefully the Lord does. 
And so I'm just planting the seeds and praying that the people here will grow in His Word. So each one of us, wherever we're at, right, ask the Lord, God, would you give me boldness? Would you give me opportunities? And would you give me wisdom? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace in our life. Thank you for Betty for opening up her eyes to how she could be sharing the gospel where she's now living. I want to thank you so much for each one of us that you have placed us and planted us all around the city where we know different people all around the city. And we pray, God, that you would give us courage. Would you give us boldness? Would you give us opportunities, maybe even this week? And God, would you give us wisdom to know what to say and how to say it? We're grateful for your love for us and pray that you would help us and strengthen us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.